It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Jason and I often describe this podcast as a mental health podcast or a mental well-being show. And first of all, we're mindful not to overuse the term mental health because it certainly has become a bit trendy. (laughs) And also, it's important for us to continue to acknowledge the fact that we are not technically mental health professionals. We are not doctors. We don't have degrees in this. This is a passion of ours. It is something that we each have studied. For me, psychology has been a passion since I was in high school, and I actually minored in psychology in college, but you know that minor didn't get me a psychology degree. And this fascination with it leads me to doing a lot of research, noticing how people are affected or how their mental health is affected by culture, society, things that are going on. We've talked about the impacts of COVID, for example, on mental health. There was an article that came out in early April 2021 that said a third of COVID-19 survivors suffer brain disease. As many as one in three people infected with COVID-19 have longer-term mental health or neurological symptoms They found 34% of COVID-19 survivors received a diagnosis for a neurological or psychological condition within six months of their infection. The most common diagnosis was anxiety, found in 17% of those treated with COVID-19, followed by mood disorder, found in 14% of patients. And that's on top of the anxiety and mental health challenges that people have had simply by being in a pandemic, not necessarily having the virus. So clearly the virus has affected most of us collectively. And I also think there's elements of this in our emotional well-being that even if you don't think that your mental health has suffered, I think that it's been a challenging time for us emotionally based on all the different behavior happening, how it's polarized a lot of us. Are We've kind of taken sides as a society. For example, like, did you get the vaccine? Did you not get the vaccine? Are you wearing a mask? Are you not wearing a mask? Are you physically distancing? Are you not physically distancing? All of these things that have, have really just put us in interesting places socially. And socially, of course, we're very affected. And then there's the impact of technology, which has increased a lot over COVID-19. And I came across an article today on this website. I think it's called MobiKip, M-O-B-I-C-I-P, however you pronounce that. I don't know if it stands for something. I don't know if I'm completely botching the name. (laughs) I will link to it in the show notes, which if you've never visited them before, are at wellevator.com. That's our website, spelled W-E-L-L. EVATR.com. It's wellness and an elevator combined. If you go to the podcast section and find this episode, which you can search for, just look in the list, you will find a full transcript of this episode with resources, including this article. 
And when I clicked on this, which is the title of it is uh, Negative Effects of Technology and How to Overcome Them, published in February 2021, I thought, eh, I'm going to know all of this. This is just going to be like whatever else I've read before. But actually, Jason, it was well-articulated, scannable, and it summarizes a lot and put things into perspective for me in a way that was a bit of an eye-opener especially when it comes to how it's impacting children. The opening paragraph had a great phrase. It said, it's no longer, I think, therefore I am, but it's, I digitize, therefore I am. And I read that line and was like, you know, like, are we no longer thinking for ourselves? Are our brains not functioning as well because of everything that's become so digital? Are we defining ourselves through our digital presence, which I think many of us are. And is that really taking us away from our innate thought processes, our unique thought processes, our core selves? Are we just becoming so digitized? Are we basically turning into machines through technology? Makes me a little bit nervous. Then this article breaks down the impacts of health on our physical body, our mental health, our social health, our education, and our safety. And then it has some tips at the end about how to recognize technology addiction amongst youngsters. So it certainly can be a great read for parents, but I think that it's a great read for everybody. In the physical effects section, it starts off by saying that technology use has impacted our metabolic diseases like sedentary lifestyles, for example. When we're on digital devices, we reduce the amount of physical movement required to stay healthy, and we also might snack more, leading us to eat foods that maybe we don't really want or even need. Constant sitting also leads to back and neck problems. We're also starting to see tendinitis in our thumbs, carpal tunnel syndrome, all these other physical problems from overusing our wrists and our fingers on the smaller devices. I've noticed this actually the pinky finger, I saw a TikTok video about this, ironically, that people's pinky fingers are starting to become distorted because of the way that we hold our phones. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, this is how I hold my phone. It rests on my pinky finger. And I've become hyper aware of that recently because I think my pinky finger does look a little bent differently. Do you notice any of that, Jason? Well, now I'm kind of freaked out because I've never actually, this is really fascinating for multiple reasons. It's fascinating because I've never paid attention to how I hold my phone. I've never been even mindful of the way that my hand physically grips the phone. So this is typically how I do it, where I wrap my fingers around it, sort of, I don't even know what this would be, uh, horizontally. So it doesn't rest on the bottom. Mine sort of just grips it on both sides. But I wanted to say, Whitney, you know, the effect that I've seen physically on my body through spending so much time at my computer is that I have some other physical effects. And the physical effect that I've been dealing with on and off has been uh, sciatica, where I sit for too long, even when I use a Pomodoro timer, because I've been using a Pomodoro timer, but even using that, and I have, I have this ergonomic chair from, what the hell is this brand? 
Human Scale is the name of the brand of the chair, right? It's like an ergonomic chair. And I have this whatever lumbar support thing under my butt. And But even with all those things, I'm sitting too long. And so I've noticed my hands are fine, right? From typing, it's my back and my legs because I feel like my nerves are getting pinched off, like the sciatica. So I'm having back pain and I'm having leg pain and being more mindful to literally like do back, you know, back stretches every day. So that, that's been my battle physically has been my back and my legs from just too much computer time. It's, a, it's something that is important for us to be aware of because when we become so used to it, for instance, I did a presentation on social media today and some data I found says that on average, people spend two and a half hours a day just on social media. And that's a significant portion of your day, especially if you're sleeping eight hours, hopefully. Although, by the way, <laughs> we already know this, but but to point this out in case the listener doesn't, technology can interfere with sleep because it causes a melatonin and serotonin imbalance. It causes our brain to be hyperactive. Blue light has been found through some studies to disturb our circadian rhythm, which can lead to insomnia and mental fog. One thing I'm going to get to later in this article is is the impact of stress. Actually, I'll just say it now that there's something called chronic smartphone stress. It's a newly discovered problem of digital usage wherein constant notifications and interactions within digital tools is establishing a new stress fear memory pathway in the brain. And I actually found this as a little tangent. I found this to be the case when I was using Clubhouse. And I was reflecting on today, especially giving a talk on social media and given how active I was on Clubhouse in the beginning or a few months ago, at least, stepping away from it, I I keep questioning, like, will I go back there? And I don't really want to, but I feel almost like a pressure to Jason. Like there's a FOMO feeling, but there's also like, ooh, am I missing out on all the potential benefits of it? But this is why we need to be mindful of the negative effects of technology and really decide for ourselves how the pros and cons weigh out for us. And for me, when I was using Clubhouse for at least the first few weeks of it, when I was heavily using it, it greatly disturbed my sleep. I was sleepwalking more often. I was sleep talking. I was having paranoia. And I wonder, Jason, was it creating these new pathways of stress in my brain? Or are those already there for me? And was this just being activated through this particular platform where I felt more fear, you know? So I think it's a really important thing to examine. And I hope that more studies dig into this deeper. But unfortunately, we won't really know for a long time, given the fact that social media is relatively new. You know, like our heavy social media usage has not been around that long. And our computer usage has not been around that long. Really, in our lifetime, Jason, we have seen a, you know, big development with smartphones. They weren't around when we were kids. So the impacts, I don't think, will really be well known for a long time. And how much are we suffering and paying the price of something inadvertently? So my response to this is slightly tangential, but I think it's related, Whitney, because what you're talking about is, you know, sort of this 
hybridization of technology and humanity that continues to happen. There are some people that are claiming that these smartphones and wearable technology is conditioning us to becoming, I've heard the phrase cyborg being turned around. And I was actually looking up something I wanted to reference to to piggyback on what you're talking about. I, I feel like it's such a strange dichotomy, isn't it? Because the fact is you and I are miles and miles away. We're recording a video and an audio podcast that can be shared with people literally all over the world. You know, we have amazing listeners in places like Africa and the Middle East, and we love our non-US listeners. And and so it's on the one hand, this increasing intersection of humanity and digital technology has tremendous benefits. We know of them. We don't necessarily need to recant the connectivity, the shareability, the distribution of content and music and movies. It, it really is incredible what we have at our fingertips. However, what I feel increasingly concerned with is this sort of singularity that's spoken of, of the merging of the biological with the technological. And I think that I, in the early days of this podcast, I mentioned a book that I had read years ago by author named James Lovelock. He wrote a book called The Revenge of Gaia. And as a refresher, Lovelock was the first person that purported the theory. He wasn't the first person. I mean, if you look at ancient religions and spiritual traditions, they all had a form of this. But his framework on it was that Gaia, the earth, is a living, sentient biosphere. So he had an article. And by the way, I think James Lovelock just recently turned 100 years old. And they interviewed him, Whitney. And I wanted to just speak really quick on this interview that I found two days ago because he talks about where he sees humanity going with all of this. And he said that he believes that we're on the cusp and we're entering something called the Novacene. And this is something that he he says it's it's a new age of intelligent beings. He says, you know, Hollywood has kind of filled our mind with images of these scary robots and terminators and and mechanical devices that follow from humans and take over the planet. But what he sees is that this new form of life is going to arise to regulate the climate and really kind of turn things around. He talks about it being an extremely crucial period for the cosmos. So the interviewer says, well, tell me more about these beings that are going to populate the Novacene, the next era of civilization. He said, they will be biological entities, but he uses the term cyborg. But they will no longer use neurons, the nerve cells that carry signals in the brain, because the neurons that we have now are incredibly slow and inefficient compared to technology, right? So signals along our neurons in our human brains travel, I didn't know this, 10,000 times slower than those signals do across copper wiring. So he's saying, you know, we'll be able to use our cleverness to assist this whole process, how there will be a switch from our brains to this sort of cyborgian, super fast technological response. So, you know, he's talking about how this is like the next stage of our evolution, that like it or not, the the emergence of us becoming cyborgs, he says, is kind of inevitable. You know, it's like it's like us coming into sort of like this this godlike role that's going to increase communication, increase our brain efficiency, where where we will be able to, he says, act and think, Whitney, 10,000 times faster than we do now. And I know you and I have talked about this in previous episodes with you know our concerns or or excitement about technology. Elon Musk has, you know, 
his Neuralink where he's implanting these chips. And there was a video that came out two weeks ago of, of I don't know that I, I don't agree with this ethically. Okay. But you know, he had this video of this monkey playing a video game with its mind. How do I feel about that? I don't feel excited about getting a chip in my brain. I don't feel excited about being a cyborg. Maybe people are like, well, yeah, but what if you could think 10,000 times faster? What if you could do, and, and here, here's where the capitalist thing comes in, but what if you could work 10,000 times more efficiently? I don't know that I want that wit. I don't know that I care about working 10,000 times more efficiently. Yeah. And that's, Part of the challenge, it kind of reminds me of when I was growing up, this idea of the uh, fountain of youth. You know, it's like, ooh, if I could drink from this fountain and be forever young, wouldn't life be great? <laughs> As human beings, we think we desire those things. And I, I believe it does come down to your beliefs. And perhaps you believe that youth is important or productivity is important. Perhaps you're living naturally is not important to you. And I think that's part of our core values, Jason, is living naturally. We want to do things that don't feel invasive to our natural bodies. That's a huge perspective of ours and others may feel very different. I, I imagine that most of the listeners of the show are in alignment with that, but certainly there are people that would rather get the perks of elements of life with while giving up the natural giving up like part of their natural living like being natural doesn't matter and of course there's a huge percentage of the population that doesn't seem to care about that right like they don't care about certain ingredients and man-made things going into their foods and the food production and gmo genetically modifying things and all of that and i think part of this is jason that it's confusing and if you have a lack of awareness and a lack of education, you're not even going to notice these things. Just like you didn't notice that your hands might be changing their shape because of your phone usage. It could be very subtle. And I think we're in this time where things are subtly changing. And are they purposely subtle so that we can be more easily manipulated or taken advantage of? Or is that just the way technology is? And then one day we wake up and it's like, oh, I have a chip implanted you know, I don't know. <laughs> and I think all of this stuff has pros and cons. And we have to ask ourselves why we want these things. And I think at least in our lifetime, Jason, we're fortunate enough, it seems to me that a good percentage of our population still wants to live naturally. And maybe speaking of, of polarizing people, maybe there will be this big divide. And the people that don't mind embracing technology and AI and all that stuff are going to go off in one direction and the people that want to live more naturally go off in another. But then you have someone like me who really loves technology. I mean, I'm a big gadget person. I don't always buy the gadgets because sometimes the costs are high, but like I get excited about technology advances and I drive a very tech heavy electric car designed by Elon Musk. And it's exciting to me. It stimulates me why? Well, because it can do all these things that are convenient. And I believe that it's better for the environment. And I believe it's very forward thinking. And like, you know, it's protecting me. The safety side of the car is a huge perk to me, you know, and camping in my car is fun and having dog mode and all these things. They're all convenient and fun. And I'm drawn to that, you know? So it's interesting for me how 
I'm kind of somewhere in between it as usual. I'm in that gray area, but I lean a little bit more towards the natural way of living. And I think that we just have to be very mindful of these things. Going through that article I was mentioning before, there are a few other fascinating parts to it. One is that studies have found that children who overuse technology are more likely to experience mental health issues, including lack of attention, low creativity, delays in language development, delays in social and emotional development, and addiction to technology. And studies have found that it's actually increasing the chance of developing symptoms of ADHD, which has already been a challenge. I remember growing up, like ADHD was semi-common. It was a, a term that we called it ADD back then, but like it was common enough that you knew about it. I imagine same with you, Jason. And I was hoping <laughs> that people would work on it and we kind of figure it out. But like if technology is impacting it, if it was bad then before we had smartphones in our hands all the time, it's a little scary to think about this. I mean, I've been fascinated with this. And this is actually one of the bigger inspirations for this episode, which is something that I feel like we're only going to skim the surface on. And since neither of us are experts on this, this is something that I would like to bring someone else on to discuss, is this term neurotypical, which I didn't really know about. And I just, the, the word in general is fascinating to me. You know, it, it means a normal brain. And there are a number of articles around this and how neurodiversity is often connected to things like ADHD and autism, Tourette's. And I don't know if they are more common or if just we have more awareness to it. But like I didn't really know anything about Tourette's and I still feel really ignorant of it. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of what there is to know about ADHD and autism and all of those things are are developing. And I just found that term neurotypical really interesting, you know, pulling this up, there are some definitions in in one website. I think it's called divergent.com. The term neurodivergent is used to describe a variety of conditions related to cognitive abilities, though most more often people with these conditions prefer neurodiverse. It applies to conditions such as autism, dyslexia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Neurodiverse individuals often struggle with soft skills, especially ones that apply to social interactions. Unexpected physical behaviors like standing too close to someone or speaking too loudly occur for people on the autism spectrum. Self-soothing movements like rocking or irregular hand movement may, may also be present. In Tourette sufferers, verbal and physical tics are the hallmark of this condition. And going back to that first article about the negative effects of technology, that was another thing here where there's a section about social health, and they found that replacement of real-life interaction with online communication results in the loss of ability to read cues like facial expressions, body language, and tone. And that, to me, freaks me out a bit. I mean, especially because there have been lots and growing concerns about online bullying. And a lot of that is because online, we don't have the same cues. 
people often say, well, you probably wouldn't treat someone like this if you were standing in front of them. And part of that is because facial cues, body language, and voice tone convey a lot of information to each other as human beings. And online, when we read something, we can easily misinterpret it. And we can say something that can be misinterpreted by someone else, or we can just simply be cruel because we don't have that in-person experience. So I think it's frightening that we're experiencing the loss in this ability. Like, What if some people are growing up with less emotional sensitivity? I mean, I think that's basically what they're saying. And also, the article says that educationally-wise... The overuse of technology in the internet has adversely affected powers of analysis and critical thinking. So here we are with, you know, Gen Z and younger, like they've spent the majority, if not all of their life, having access to these tools. And then parents, millennials and older or older millennials and above probably inadvertently are, are using technology for their kids because it's convenient because their kids enjoy it. Like they, you know, there's this big belief like, oh, it gives me a break. It's the only thing that cause, calms my child down. It's the only way I, I can take a shower or whatever and that self-care stuff. And I, you know, I'm not a mom, but I have compassion for that. I imagine I would probably be tempted to do the same thing, you know? But I remember starting with one of my first friends that had a child, Jason, like it felt weird when I watched her give her daughter her iPad to soothe her, her daughter was like crying or I can't remember the exact circumstance, but I remember just watching her hand her the iPad to watch a movie or something. And I was sitting there going, wow, that's kind of strange. Cause we weren't at home in front of the television. We were in the car and I just thought, Something about this just doesn't feel right to me at the core. And again, it comes back around maybe as a as for me and my belief system, it doesn't feel natural, right? Like it feels like a shortcut. It feels like it's got more cons than pros. It feels like a temporary superficial solution to a deeper issue that's only actually making it worse. So if your child learns to self-soothe by using technology, you're setting them up for a big struggle. Because can you imagine if like the only time that you feel good, Jason, is when you're using technology, the only time that you can stop yourself from crying or feeling depressed or anxious is to use it. But yet at the same time, using technology is making all of these things worse. So yes, you get the temporary relief of it, but then you also get compounding long-term issues. And I think as adults, we also have to be mindful of this. And I've found my awareness growing because I will often self-soothe or or um, however else you want to describe my desire to relax by watching TikTok. And sometimes I'll sit there and go, wow, this isn't actually making me feel that good. I'm just in the habit of it. And I haven't trained myself to do something else. So now I'm used to this and I crave it and I'm going through the motions, but it's probably making my life worse, not better. And that's a sign for me to really reevaluate this. I think it's a very similar sort of relationship cognitively to 
receiving a toy as a child to pacify one's mood to receive candy or sweets because I think you're spot on Whitney I think that what what this starts to do is is neurologically cognitively train us to associate the distraction of online media or as we get older and become tweens teens 20s the approval and the validation of being on social media I mean, it's an emotional pacification, no doubt, the same way like a toy was or the same way candy was. And I'll, I'll even go on record to say that I think in many ways, if I look back on my childhood, pre-video games, way pre-social media, what did my mom do to pacify me? And, and I love my mother, Susan. She was doing her best as I think all parents do, okay? And I do mean that. But when I would kind of freak out, it was, you know, TV throw a tantrum and get a new toy, or throw a tantrum and get the food that I want. Now, what does this mean? I think it trains kids in that context, particularly to think if I just go ballistic enough and learn to manipulate and control through chaotic emotions, then I'll get what I want. And then you see a lot of adult behavior where people are not really emotionally mature. I mean, we see this in many examples of people doing the same sort of childlike behavior because they think it's going to give them what they want as adults. But the other thing too is I would say, Whitney, the contribution of pacification through material objects continues to reinforce a consumerist mindset of if I'm anxious, if I'm sad, if I'm worried, if I'm depressed, I just need to go buy something and I'll feel better. Why? Because that's what the fuck we did as children. We freaked out, we're having an emotional moment. We didn't receive the actual support we needed, but we got pacification and comfort in the term in terms of things. So again, as adults, then to your point, whether it's social media, digital technology, physical commodities, probably not food, food that's not great for us, then there's an association of that'll make me feel better. Well, it also is great for businesses because it means you're going to be a good, obedient consumer and you're just going to keep buying shit. I mean, the prototypical framework of, of what do they call it? Shopping therapy, right? We see that being kind of passed around, Whitney, as being like a cutesy thing of like, oh, I just need some shopping therapy. I don't find it fucking cute. I think it's a continued reinforcement of like, I just need to go buy things. Retail therapy. Thank you. Shopping therapy. Retail therapy. I just need to buy something to feel better. Well, does it really make you feel, it makes you feel better for like 10 minutes. I go out, you wear your new dress. You go out, you got the new shiny car. Like, can we all just agree? Like that stuff doesn't really last. It doesn't really get to the heart of why we're feeling so bad about ourselves. It's temporary pacification, but it's great for business and it's awesome for a toxic capitalist structure. It's great for that. <laughs> So to your point, we, we have to do better as adults, I think, when we realize that our mechanisms of comfort and emotional support are tied to digital distraction, extreme consumption of social media, toxic retail therapeutic habits, and eating unhealthy food to make ourselves feel better. And I mean, I've done all those things. I felt bad. I go and buy something. I feel like shit. I eat a whole tub of ice cream. I've done this more times than I can count. But it's also realizing at a certain point in your life of it doesn't really work. It doesn't work. Yep. And I think that's why this hits hits us so hard and triggers us. It hits close to home because we've experienced this too. And I don't need to have children to care about the impacts 
that this is having on children and parenting. We've talked about this in at least a few episodes, how after I watched the documentary Childhood 2.0, which we explored on another episode, if you want to listen to that, we will link to that in our show notes at wellevator.com along with anything else we reference. We've had a number of amazing parents on the show too. So even though we're not parents, we bring on people that can give us their perspective and share the struggles. And I felt like it was my responsibility to be aware because while I might not be a parent, I am a digital content creator. And so I'm playing into the system. I can be part of the problem or I can be part of the solution. And if it's affecting me, I can only imagine how much it's affecting somebody that's not fully cognitively developed. One thing that I found super fascinating at the end of this article that I've been referencing about negative effects of technology is a term called fubbing. Have you heard about this, Jason? P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G? No. What is fubbing? Well, (laughs) it's something that we've all experienced. It is the act of snubbing someone you're talking with in person of favoring your phone. Quite simply, it stands for phone snubbing. And this is fascinating. I pulled up an article on healthline.com, which I will also link to in our show notes. And it talks about how fubbing interrupts your ability to be present and engage with people around you. And It has a threat to four fundamental needs, according to a study, the core needs being belongingness, self-esteem, meaningful existence, and control. Research shows that people who are fubbed are more likely to reach for their phones and try to engage with their social media network in order to fill the void that they received or that opened when they were fubbed. And so this starts a vicious cycle. And most of us, if not all of us with phones or digital devices, have played a role in this and have experienced on it. We've been on the receiving and the giving end. Uh, It reminds me of being in an event, like when we were doing a lot of in-person events, especially for me, like it was my coping mechanism as somebody that sometimes feels socially awkward, often feels very introverted. When I would get to an event, I would use my phone to avoid social interactions or to fill the void when I didn't have anything else to do. So that would create a signal to anybody else there because, you know, most of us have been in an experience where we we might not be on our phone, but when we see somebody else on their phone, it's a cue to us. Oh, I forgot I had my phone. Maybe I should pick up my phone. This person isn't talking to me. This person isn't giving me attention. So why should I give them attention? And I started being more mindful and conscious of that. I I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but a few months ago, I saw one of my friends for the first time in a year. And I decided that when I got there, I was going to put my phone on airplane mode and I was going to be very present. And the result of that was I was so aware of when my friend got on her phone And I can't tell you how bizarre it was to notice it because she probably didn't perceive herself as being on her phone that much, but it was a ton compared to me. Like it's all relative. If I had been 
on my phone off and on, it might not have seemed that much. It might have felt like, oh, I've only been on here a few minutes. But sometimes we add up the numbers. And this is why I think it's really important for us to monitor our screen time and use tools, some of which are actually called screen time. You can track all of this. I use a a program called Rescue Time on my computer. There's screen time for the iOS devices. There's freedom on iOS devices, which I've been meaning to try. They can actually limit the amount of screen time, but they at least can track it and really show you a real look at what you're doing. And when you see these numbers, it's a wake-up call because what feels like just a few minutes, what feels like, oh, no big deal when we're socializing can actually be a very big deal and very harmful. And it creates like a this constant disconnect. I think this is part of it, Jason. It like interrupts the flow when we see someone's eyes, it's just like when you're in a conversation and somebody looks past you, which has happened a lot at conferences or parties, you know, you're talking to someone and suddenly you're talking to them, but you notice that they're not fully paying attention and their eyes look off and, and you, it's like they just it completely interrupted it. And many of us are guilty of it. If we're not super mindful, a lot of us will do that. And I wonder over time... One of the big themes here is like, how are we changing socially? How are our brains changing? And how is that impacting our ability to communicate and be, you know, social creatures? All of those little things add up and it breaks the present moment. It breaks the connection. It breaks the ability to show people that we care. And going back to these four fundamental needs, like it impacts our sense of belonging. It can impact our self-esteem. It has some correlation with our meaningful existence and control. And I haven't dug deeper into to what those last two mean. And then to summarize with the fubbing, there's three ways that Healthline.com recommends to stop fubbing. One is to make meals a no-phone zone, which is something I'm working on. Two is to leave your phone behind. And three is to challenge yourself. These seem pretty obvious. There's also three ways to help someone else stop fubbing. And number one is to model a better behavior, which kind of goes to my point here is like you're giving somebody a cue. So if your phone is in your pocket, it's also a cue. Number two is to call them out. In fact, there's something called the Stop Fubbing Campaign that can email a loved one a note about their behavior if if a face-to-face conversation is too difficult or uncomfortable. That's interesting. It's actually (laughs) stopfubbing.com. I got to go check that out. And then number three is to be sympathetic because fubbing isn't a real addiction. It's an impulse problem, according to this article. Impulses and learned behaviors take some time to break. So be patient, understanding, but be firm too. And then it links to some habit change books. And we've talked about some of these books on the show before. The link actually isn't working, but I guarantee Atomic Habits is on there, which is such an amazing, amazing... uh, Oh my gosh, this is so funny too, Jason. I went to stopfubbing.com and this must be an old article because stopfubbing.com is now some like random site that must have bought the domain and it's got all of these random articles on it. So clearly the stopfubbing.com campaign was not that effective because it doesn't work anymore. So don't go to that domain. I'm laughing for so many reasons. 
Number one, because yeah, apparently people were not that passionate about it, I guess. But also fubbing to me sounds like a lewd sexual act. And every time you say it, I just, I get this imagery in my head. Um, so there's that. <laughs> you know, one thing I've always wanted to do, and I've never done Whitney on this topic of fubbing. And I, again, based on my reaction, especially for the YouTube watchers, you clearly see I had no idea what fubbing meant. I don't remember who proposed this. It was years ago, before this terminology existed, apparently. But their policy was anytime they would go out to dinner with a group of friends or even a, like, like a, a context of a lot of people, their policy was to, and their suggestion to others, was to put the phones in the middle of the table. Or if you go to a place like one of our most beloved restaurants in LA, uh, Shojin, it's a vegan sushi and Japanese restaurant. They have little baskets that you put under your chair. So again, whether it's middle of the table or a basket next to the table, the suggestion was, if you want to stop fubbing, get everyone's buy-in to put their phones in the middle of the table or in a basket under the table. And then prior to the conclusion of the meal, the conclusion being everyone pays and the bill is settled, whoever reaches and grabs their phone first for a non-emergency reason pays for the entire bill. I think that's a pretty cool way to get people to stop fubbing. And to be honest with you, whatever the next like major dinner is in whenever that's going to happen, God knows, I actually want to do that because my concern with for myself and for people I know is that in a post-COVID world, we are going to be so deeply enmeshed in this digital tech even more than we were before that my concern is people's attention spans are going to be even shittier than they were before COVID. And so I, I'm not going to be a dick about it, but I definitely want to be more mindful and encourage people to do the same. So I, I've wanted to do this for years, Whitney, and I've never done it, but I want to go on record publicly to say that like whatever, whether that's my birthday dinner, if that's a thing, whatever the hell the next like, yay, 10, 12, 15 of us are getting together. I'm going to say it's my request. Everyone put their phones in, the, in a basket in the middle of the table. Whoever grabs it, if anyone does, you're paying for the whole damn thing. Like, and you will. Like, this isn't a joke. You know what I'm saying? Like, that weird looking finger from holding your phone too much, I'm going to bend it even more. Okay? I'm going to make sure you have a useless pinky. You grab the phone, you don't pay, you're going to have a useless pinky. I'm getting all mafioso on you now. Okay? But I do want to do it because I want to hold myself accountable in, in a very serious way. But I also want to hold people around me accountable because... I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of a FUB, and I sure as shit can remember a whole litany of times that I've done it to other people, including you, Whitney. We'd be out at a public event. I'd be emotionally uncomfortable. We'd be in mid-conversation, and I would check out. Why? Because there was something deeply uncomfortable in the moment. And why did I do it? Pacification and comfort. And I, I think the situation with fubbing wit that I've done it the most is when I've gone to a party or a gathering and I don't know anyone, or maybe I just know the host and the host is busy entertaining everyone. And I'm like the wallflower in the corner who's like, oh, I don't know anyone. And I do not feel the courage to go up and make small talk with nobody, people, you know, and what do I do? I sit in the corner and I look at my phone because I'm uncomfortable and I don't feel safe. And as we go back to the root of this cognitively, I associate safety and comfort and, oh, no one will notice me if I'm the guy in the corner with the phone. But that's not really what we're about. 
You know, it's like this might get uncomfortable. Is not just like this clever? I mean, it is a clever title. We like it, but it's more of like a tenet or a mantra of how we try and live our lives. So as we're kind of wrapping this one, I I, I also, Whitney, if I'm at a gathering where I'm nervous as shit and I'm uncomfortable, I'm like, <gasps> I don't know anyone here. I'm also going to check myself and be like, don't retreat to your phone. Just don't, don't, don't pacify with the phone, dude. So th- this episode has been tremendously useful for me because yeah, I want to be much more mindful and corrective of my action in those situations because it's just too easy to check out. It is. And that leads me to a few final recommendations from this wonderful website. I really hope I didn't completely botch their name. Moby Kit. I don't know. It just doesn't. When I see words like this, I'm like, what the heck? I have no idea how to pronounce it. It looks like it could be Moby Chip, but there's no H. Moby Kip doesn't make sense. (laughs) Like, what the heck does this website mean? I feel like at the top of it, it should tell you how to pronounce it. Do you have a guess, Jason? How would you pronounce? Do they have a logo? And is the logo a giant whale sipping a martini? Because then I would say it's Moby Sip, which would be Moby Sip. I don't know that. I that's I mean I I read it as Moby Sip, and then my mind went immediately to a whale drinking a martini, which would. (laughs) Tell you all you need to know, clearly. No, it's like, it looks like um one of those food tags that you use to like tie up your bread, a bread tag, I guess. Like it kind of looks like that or like a badge. I don't know, but they actually, it's a, what they make is a parental control software and internet filter. So they do some great work. I just wish I knew what their name meant and how to pronounce it so I can give them proper credit. At the end of this article, though, which you can read, and, and and we would love your feedback. This is a great opportunity. If you know how to pronounce their name, send us a message on social media. You send us an Instagram audio DM and tell us how do, how do you pronounce it. If you want to reach out to the company on our behalf, send them this episode. Say, hey, can you help these people pronounce your name? <laughs> Anyways, at the end of their article, they have a couple more tips. One is the American... Optometric Association recommends taking a 20-second break after every 20 minutes of screen time to look at something 20 feet away to ease eye strain. They also recommend media-free time, such as dinner time and media-free zones. You're also encouraged to practice digital hygiene, which is a terminology I like a lot. And this is turning off your computers or your devices at least an hour before you go to bed in order to allow the brain to shut off. And I generally do not do this. I think about it every single night, Jason, and I resist it because I like the soothing comfort of being on a device before bed. And that's a hard habit for me to break. And then I love this quote, which I want to make sure is, is an accurate quote. And it is. It is from someone named Arthur C. Clarke, who said, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Kind of brings us back to like the natural thing. It's like indistinguishable from magic. Interesting food for thought to reflect on. It's And as Moby Chip or Moby Sip says, it's up to us to stay on the fantastic side of magic without crossing over to the horror. Actually, maybe that's part of the quote. I don't know. They also weren't very clear about that, but I like that. It's up to us to stay on the fantastic side of magic without crossing over to the horror. So yes, technology is quite magical. 
got a lot of benefits, but there's a fine line between the pros and the cons of it. With that said, Jason, I would like to give a shout out to a brand. I'm not sure if you came prepared or have one on your mind today, but this is something we are speaking to habits back in the habit of on this show, which is acknowledging amazing businesses that we support. If you don't have one, Jason, I have a suggestion that you could bring up. But I wanted to bring up a brand that kind of ties into this conversation. They are an alternative to cocktails. So I'm not opposed to alcohol, but some people really struggle with it from a physiological reason. They have religious reasons. They have personal choices. There's a lot of reasons why people choose or can't drink. And I became very passionate in 2021 about alcohol alternatives. I've enjoyed trying them. And one brand that I absolutely love is called Nope. I love their designs. So a reason to watch on YouTube because you can see me holding up a few of their flavors. They also have really wonderful flavors. So raspberry lime ginger beer, rosemary vanilla lemonade. So even if you're not like trying to replace cocktails, if you like drinks, they're still a lot of fun. Mango margarita with jalapeno and strawberry basil smash. I don't recall which one I liked the best, but the the combination that appeals to me the most is the rosemary vanilla lemonade. Like that's just such a cool combo. And it's all their motto is to change the way you chill. And I think that's really cool because, you know, technology is a coping mechanism and so is alcohol. And a lot of us reach for alcoholic drinks without thinking much about it. We're in the habit of it. And they can also have big effects on us physically and mentally, emotionally, and socially too. And one thing I really like about alternative octail, octail, ooh, alternative cocktails, octail, alt-tails would be a better way to say it. One thing I like about this is that socially, sometimes people drink because of like peer pressure. They want to feel like they're fitting in. So you can bring a cocktail like this with you if it's appropriate, or a lot of bars are starting to offer them now. So you kind of feel like you're fitting in and you get to enjoy a drink and be around other people without making it really obvious that you're not drinking. And having something like this at your own parties once you start socializing again, if you haven't been, it kind of gives a really good conversation point. So Jason, this could be a tip for you. I know you love alcohol alternatives, so you can bring something unique like this with you. And instead of looking at your phone, you can just share a drink with someone or or uh, drink it and someone naturally is going to come up and ask you about what you're drinking. And now you've got a conversation point that doesn't involve your phone whatsoever. So shout out to Nope. We'll link to them in the show notes at wellevator.com. Their website is drinknope.com. And that's also their social media, very kind people, very passionate. So check them out. Jason, do you have a product that you would like to shout out before we wrap today? I do have a product and it's also a preview of a future sponsor of ours. And I didn't intend on shouting them out today in this moment, but I have been dealing with really severe anxiety all day today. It's been very acute and and particularly awful today. It's been really challenging. And one of the products that we have been using recently is this really wonderful CBD oil from a brand called Head and Heal. They're based out of New York. The hemp is grown in New York. They're a family-run business, fully USDA organic. And look, you know, we 
have been privy to a lot of CBD products and terpenes and THC and CBN and all the kind of fancy derivatives of, of the hemp and cannabis plant, this one really, really works. There are a lot of hemp products, CBD products I've tried that I don't feel anything, right? The effects are dubious at best. If I take a dropper full of this, Whitney, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a CBD product we took years back and we were at a trade show and we were like, oh, well, let's see if it works. And mind you, we're at a, a public event with like, you know, tens of thousands of people. And when it hit, it was like, okay, this works. I did this the other day. I started using this and I've been using it all day. Few drops here, few drops there for my anxiety. It works amazingly well. So Head and Heel is going to be a sponsor. Carly's going to come on as a future guest. She's full of wisdom of the processing, the benefits of the hemp plant, and why her company is so unique. We always make sure, and part of our integrity of being the hosts and founders of Wellevator, and this might get uncomfortable, is we don't like to endorse anything that A, we don't actually use, and B, that we haven't felt the actual palpable effects of. So I'm stoked about Head and Heel. Kudos to Carly and her family and their team. We can't wait to have her on and talk more about these products. But it, it's been a godsend today, Whitney, because again, my anxiety has been through the roof and it's been a savior for me today. So shout out to Head and Heel, and we appreciate you supporting the podcast. So with that, dear listener, we conclude another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. For any of the resources, as Whitney mentioned, including the articles, the references, interviews, the products we've mentioned, you can go to our website at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section, and it will take you to the transcript and the show notes for this episode and all of our previous 200 plus episodes if you want to dive into those interesting discussions. And of course, we are on all the social media networks, most active right now on Instagram and our Facebook group. And you can check out also all of the free resources on our website. If you want some PDFs, check out our flagship courses, Wellness Warrior Training and the Consistency Code. And we have new episodes that come out every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, including our special guests. So with that, thank you for your support. Thank you for your listenership. And if you have any suggestions, feedback, requests for future topics, you can always email us directly. It's hello at wellevator.com. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.